We get to continue. The, the, the time that we spend in God's word is just as much meant to be an act and an experience of worship and devotion to him. And so we're going to continue in that. In a moment, I'm going to read our, our passage for this morning that's going to be in 1 Timothy 1, because we're in our third week through a series through the book of 1 Timothy. And we're calling, just as a quick intro, we're calling this series In This House because our journey through 1 Timothy is sort of the house rules for how the church, how the people of God function. What are the values that drive what we do? And we've already talked about a couple of them. We've talked about how, as God's people, we love the church. We value what God is doing in the world, and we commit to what he's doing through his church. And last week, we talked about the whole idea that we cling to truth. We trust that God will be vindicated in the end, and we cling to the truth that he reveals. And we're going to talk about a third house rule today, and it's going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And I'm going to start off, we'll read this passage together, I'll read it for us, and then afterwards we'll walk through it as a group. And so if you have a Bible, you can read along, otherwise you can look up on the screen or on your bulletin insert as I read. Starting in verse 12 of 1 Timothy 1. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This is God's word. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I want to ask a question as we get ready to walk back through this passage. And the question is, what do you revel in? I know revel is not a word we use all the time. It kind of has to do with the idea of celebrating something or rejoicing in something. I I always think of just kind of the idea of what is it that you're swimming in? What is it that you're so happy about? What is it that even when other things are going wrong in your life, you fall back on and you say, I can still have joy because I have this. What do you revel in? Because everybody revels in something. And a lot of people in the United States, because of our resources, we revel in money. We revel in our possessions. Say, all right, health might not be good. My relationships are kind of a mess right now. But you know what? At least I have enough money to keep myself secure. At least I have enough money to feed myself. At least I can buy stuff if I'm bored or if I need a new toy. At least I have money. And we revel in our money and our possessions. But a lot of us know kind of instinctively, we're like, all right, I know that's not the best. So I'm not going to revel in money. And so some of us revel in friends. We say, you know, even if money is bad, even if I don't have a lot of that, even if I'm living paycheck to paycheck or if I've lost my job and things are tight, even if all of that has gone wrong, at least I have friends. 
At least I have people who care about me and like me and that I can count on. Some of us revel in our friendships. Some of us revel in the past. Some of you remember how great you were in high school. (laughs) It's like, man, you wouldn't believe it. Best athlete, most popular, anything like that. You revel in the past. Or maybe not even that. Maybe you're at a stage of life where you revel in the time when all the kids were in the home, everybody was under one roof, and you just think, that, that's when it was really great. Sometimes we trick ourselves into believing that there was a time that was way better than this time, and we revel in those memories. Some of us are tempted to revel in our own superiority to others. And there, there's almost no rush better than feeling better than other people and reveling in the fact that they made foolish decisions while you made wise decisions and they made immoral decisions while you made really strong moral decisions. Some of us revel in our perceived superiority to others. What do you revel in? Because everybody revels in something. And for our third house rule of how we function as the people of God, we're gonna talk about what we as a church revel in, what we as the people of God revel in. And to put it short, we revel in grace. When things are going wrong, when things are uncertain, and when there's a lot of chaos in our lives, we revel in grace. We revel in God's grace. We revel in the undeserved, unearned, sin-forgiving, guilt-erasing, life-transforming grace of God. We celebrate it, we rejoice in it, we think about it, we talk about it, we explode with worship about it, we revel in grace. We revel in grace because it's the food that we feast on when we're hungry for belonging. And there's no belonging like belonging to God. We revel in grace because it's the air that we breathe when we're suffocating from anxiety and we have nowhere else to turn. We revel in grace because it's the cool water that we drink when we're walking through the desert and we're parched by trials. We revel in God's grace because it's the medicine that we take when we're sick with guilt and shame. We revel in God's grace. And in part, that kind of feels like, all right, sermon done. We revel in God's grace. Let's go do that. That sounds really good. That sounds really nice. That sounds like we should just do that all the time. And and, and here's the problem. The, The problem that comes is that we can begin to feel like that's not sustainable because either it's too good to be true or we're just not as sure we're on solid footing. Like, all right, that sounds really nice that even when things are going wrong, I just, I fall back upon the grace of God. I know that I'm within the family. I know that I'm forgiven. I know that I'm reconciled. I know that I'm taken care of. I know that God is working all things for my good, but I'm suspicious that I'm not on solid footing when I embrace that. And maybe for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons why we're suspicious of it is that we know ourselves well enough to know that that doesn't sound like something we should be allowed to do. It seems like there should be some catch. It seems like somehow this should be dependent upon us. And so here's what we're going to do as we walk through our passage. We're going to look at the reality of why we are on solid footing when we revel 
in grace. And, and I'll put it succinctly before we get into the passage. We revel in grace because the salvation that we have received, the salvation that we get from God is something that is received, not something that's achieved. We revel in grace because salvation is something that we get, not something that we earn. As we walk through this passage, that for Paul is largely autobiographical. He's largely telling his story. What we get in on is we get in on two realities that show us that we are on solid footing when we revel in grace. The first one's in verses 12 through 14. And the first thing that Paul's going to tell us is we revel in grace because we are saved by Christ's initiative. This isn't something that we set into motion. This is something that Jesus set into motion. And he already kind of gets into that in verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength. Right away, he's saying somebody else did something. I'm thanking Jesus because he gave me strength. And you could look at that and say, well, that's probably true in a lot of ways. He gave Paul strength for a lot of different things. But Paul has something specific in mind here that he's thanking Jesus for. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Paul started this letter by talking about the fact that he's an apostle. He was sent out by Jesus in a special way to plant churches, to proclaim the gospel, and to lead people to saving faith in Jesus. But even here, when he talks about that exact thing, notice how he ends the verse when he says, appointed me, appointed me to his service. Paul in this passage is much less focused on the authority and power and status that he has and much more focused on the humbled responsibility that he has to serve God and to serve his people. He says, he appointed me to his service because he considered me trustworthy. And it's kind of weird that Jesus considered Paul trustworthy. The reason it's weird is because of what Paul says in verse 13. He says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now, he does say that little thing at the end. He says, I I was acting in ignorance and unbelief, which basically means that Paul is saying, when I was doing all this horrible stuff, I thought I was doing the right thing. But nonetheless, I was still doing the wrong thing. These were still sins. These were still things that he bore guilt about. But he wasn't aware that he was actively rebelling against God in the entire direction of his life. Look at how he describes himself. He says, he considered me worthy and appointed me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer. This is bad. You know what a blasphemer is? Somebody who slanders God. It's bad to slander other people. He's saying, I slandered God. He doesn't even say like I did it once. He says, this was who I was. I was a blasphemer. And what he's talking about specifically is that shortly after Jesus had been raised from the dead and people were going around proclaiming the message and Jews were coming to place their faith in Jesus, Paul looked to stamp that out before it got started. And his blasphemy was basically centered around Jesus. It was by saying things like, Jesus is not the son of God. Jesus is not Lord. Jesus is nothing special. He was blaspheming. Didn't know he was doing it, but he was speaking against the son of God. He says, I was a blasphemer. 
But he wasn't satisfied with just speaking against Jesus. He says, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor. Not only did he say, you guys should all not pay attention to Jesus. He said, if you do pay attention to Jesus, I'm going to get letters from the state officials of the nation of Israel and have you thrown in prison and maybe executed. In fact, if you read in Acts 6 and 7 in the beginning of chapter 8, you see that he oversaw the execution of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He was on his way to persecute people even more when in Acts chapter 9, he was met on the road by Jesus and his life was changed forever. He says, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, and I love, he throws this at the end, he says, and I was a violent man. And here's why I think he throws this in. There are times when you're in a position of authority and you're enforcing consequences on someone, but you sort of hate to do it. You're like, I'm sorry, I'm the teacher, you broke the rules, I have to send you to the principal's office. Or you're a police officer and you're saying, gosh, I'm sorry, but this is the law, I have to arrest you. There are times when you do that. And Paul's saying, I wasn't doing that. I wasn't like, hey guys, sorry, I got these letters from the state, I have to put you in prison because you believe in Jesus. He was anxious to do this. He was a violent man. In fact, Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says that he was breathing murderous threats towards Jesus and his disciples. Paul was loving that he got to do this. He was a blasphemer and he was a persecutor and he was a violent man. And he says, the only reason why I got mercy was because I was acting in, in ignorance and unbelief. And by the way, mercy is going to come up later. But let me just pause for a second here. You know what mercy is? Mercy is when God should punish you. He has every justification for punishing you and he chooses not to. If there was anybody that deserved to be punished, anybody on the earth that God would have been justified in wiping off the planet, it would have been Paul. And Paul says, he showed me mercy. Thank God for mercy. Thank God that he shows us mercy. Think of how different your life would be if God didn't consistently look at things that he could punish you for and choose not to. Thank God that he shows us mercy. He shows us mercy, but here's the weird part. So he said back in verse 12, he said, I was considered trustworthy. And you read verse 13 and you're saying, I don't know why Jesus considered you trustworthy. It's as if Jesus is looking out at the world and he's saying, all right, I gotta get guys, I gotta, gotta get some people who are gonna spread the message. I need people who are trustworthy to start churches and proclaim the gospel. I need people that I can trust to do this. And you know, I'm looking at Paul. I think big things are gonna happen there. Paul was the least likely candidate for this. This would have been like um, if, you, uh, if you were a teacher and you had a class of, like, let's say, a bunch of seven-year-olds, um, and you had to leave the classroom for about 15 minutes to take care of something in the hallway, and you were going to leave them unattended, and you needed to choose one of the kids to sort of make sure things went okay while you were gone. And you looked at the kid who was the kid who was the biggest troublemaker, the most rambunctious, the most rebellious, the most disrespectful, and you brought that kid up to the front and you said, I'm going to be in the hallway for about 15 minutes. I want you to oversee the class and make sure everybody stays on task. Now, here's something funny about that kid. That kid could say, the teacher thinks I'm trustworthy. The teacher considers me trustworthy and he would be right. You know why he would be right? It's not because he was behaving in a trustworthy way. 
he would be right that he was considered trustworthy because you decided to trust him. You didn't trust him because he was trustworthy. You considered him trustworthy because you decided to trust him. Paul said back in verse 11 that the gospel of the glory of the happy God was entrusted to him. Paul's not saying, Jesus looked at me and said, that's a guy I got to have on the team. He's saying, Jesus looked at me and he chose to trust me with the gospel. He considered me trustworthy despite all this stuff. And so you get to verse 14. And in verse 14, he says, the grace of our Lord. He already talked about mercy. Mercy is when God says, I'm not going to punish you even though I should. Grace is when God says, I'm going to shower you with gifts even though I shouldn't. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And that faith and love basically means this. Paul used to be a blasphemer and now he has faith in God. Paul used to be a violent persecutor and now he has love towards people. He has been utterly transformed. And and here's the deal. All right, I want to put all three verses up here and I want you just to notice in this. This is like testimony time for Paul. He's telling his story. And I want you to think about the fact that when we tell our stories, how many times we use the word I? How many times we talk about what we did and what we chose and what we thought and what we asked and what we decided? Paul is telling his story and the main actor in the story is not him. The actor in the story is Jesus. He says, Jesus strengthened me. Jesus considered me trustworthy. Jesus appointed me for service. Jesus showed me mercy. Jesus poured out his grace on me and the faith and love that I now have are in Christ Jesus. Paul is telling a story about how he was headed towards hell, about how he was estranged from God, about how he was 100% in the wrong and about how Jesus came and tracked him down and brought him into the family. He's telling a story about the initiative of Jesus in saving him. And I'll just say this, for a lot of us, when we think back about it, if we're Christians, when we think back about how we became Christians, we, we tend to think about it as a bunch of things that we did. So we say, all right, well, well, I went here and I read this book, or, or maybe I heard the gospel over here and I thought about it for a while and I asked questions and then I prayed and then I went over here and I learned a little bit more and eventually I wrestled with stuff and then I thought about stuff and then I came to the point that I prayed and I put my faith in Jesus. And in a certain way, all that did happen. Those actions did happen. It's not that our perspective is totally warped. It's that when we say that, we're ignoring the fact that if we really saw beyond the veil, we would realize how hard God was at work in making all those things line up. Sort of like this. When my kids were younger, they used to like to play hide and seek with me. And it's fun playing hide and seek with little kids. Um, It takes like four seconds to find them when they hide. And so that's nice. So the kid hides, you find him four seconds later, and then they're like, all right, dad, now your turn to hide. So I would go and hide, and I wouldn't be trying to hide in some super clever place, but, you know, be behind a door or something in a bedroom. And uh, they look around for a little while, and then it becomes obvious pretty quickly, they're they're not even close. (laughs) They're they're not going to find you. And so after a little while, um, you know, if if I'm in a closet, I start kind of rustling around. You know, try to make a noise, touch the coats, crinkle things, try to make a little bit of noise to draw them in. And, and maybe that doesn't work. And so then you get a little bit more overt. You know, you start kind of like stamping the feet, knocking on the door, trying to make, you don't want to make it too obvious, but you want them to find you. And then if that doesn't work, you know, you have to just get even more overt. I'd be in there and I'd be like, hey, 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 
And then sometimes I'd even be like, I'm back here. (laughs) And then the kid comes into the room, opens up the door, sees you, and what does the kid say? I found you. (laughs) Now here's the deal, this is an imperfect analogy. But I want you just to realize that a lot of times the way that we see things is we're like, I found God. If we really got in on all of the things that he did, for those of us that grew up in Christian homes, he was like, oh, they're never going to come to faith if I don't put them in a Christian home. For the people that he was like, all right, I'm going to put this teacher in their life at this time so that they hear the message. I'm going to put this friend into their life. I'm going to have this chaotic event happen that's going to destabilize them and have them be ready to respond in some way. I'm going to hear, have them hear this song that's going to warm their heart towards worship. I'm going to connect them with this book or with this pastor or this person that's going to answer their question. God is at work all along the way. We open the door and we're like, I found Jesus. No, Jesus came and tracked you down when you were headed towards hell. And here's the really good news about all this. There are times that we feel like utter disappointments and we wonder when Jesus is about to give up on us. I'm doing the same things. I still commit the same sin. I'm still cowardly when I should be brave and we just get really upset. And when is the time gonna come that Jesus is just gonna say enough is enough, I'm done. Because some of you have had people in your life that have said enough is enough, I'm done. Jesus is never going to say that. And the reason we know he's never going to say that is because Jesus was the one who came and found you and tracked you down when you were headed towards hell. He is not abandoning you now. We revel in grace because we are saved by Christ's initiative. And Paul's not done. There's more to this story. He's going to say not only are we saved by Christ's initiative, but we are saved through Christ's sacrifice. And I love how he begins verse, thir- verse 15. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. It's just like, all right, I'm about to just say something. You really should pay attention. I mean, everything in the Bible is God's word. We should always pay attention. It's like, all right, I'm about to say something really important. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. Here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There you go. If you're looking, sometimes we look in the Bible and we say, are there verses that just give us a real bottom line, sort of a summary of what the message is all about? Here's one of those times. Here's a trustworthy saying that you should fully accept. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. And just even think about that. Think about the beginning. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world. He didn't even have to be here. It's not that Jesus was here and he said, while I'm here, I might as well save sinners. Jesus humbled himself, was born as a helpless baby, took on human flesh in all its weakness and humility, and then saved sinners. And there was something he had to do to save sinners. And it's talked about all throughout the the New Testament, but maybe the clearest statement of it is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, when he says, Christ died for sins according to the scriptures. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and the only way for him to save sinners was to die for sins. Jesus came. There's no Christianity without a cross. Nobody's brought into the family without the sacrifice of Jesus, that he took our place, that he got the punishment we deserved so that we get the reward that he deserves. 
He was treated how we should have been treated so that we get to be treated how he should be treated. We are brought into the family of God. We are saved by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And and also don't miss this. Paul doesn't say Jesus, Christ, came into the world to show human beings a better way. The gospel is not that human beings need moral guidance. We certainly do, but that's not the core problem. Jesus Christ didn't just come into the world to say, I've got some advice and if everybody follows it, life will be better. He came into the world to say, you are helpless, condemned sinners and without a sacrifice, there is no hope. Jesus is first and foremost a savior. He certainly is a teacher and he certainly is an example, but he's first and foremost a savior. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and then Paul adds something in. He says, of whom I am the worst. You gotta love this because the word worst actually means first in the Greek. So what he's basically saying is, you know what? They did a study. And they used one of those algorithms and they used it for every human being who had ever stepped foot on the planet, everybody who had ever lived. And they were trying to find who was in first place of all the sinners. And guess what they discovered? It was me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I got first place in this contest. And look at why he says this. There's a reason behind why he says this. He says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And there are going to be people who end up placing their faith in Jesus, receiving the eternal life, that we have the hope of heaven, that we have forgiveness for our sins, that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that we have God as our Father. Saying people are going to believe in him unto eternal life. And for people to believe in him in that way, Jesus decided to make Paul an example. And in this case, not an example in the sense that we look at Paul and we say, be like Paul. An example in the sense that Paul says, I'm the worst and I was forgiven. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. Nobody has outsinned God's grace. In fact, Paul says, nobody outsinned me. I was in first place. I was the worst of sinners and Jesus saved me as an example so that nobody ever had to wonder if they had outsinned God's grace. You get to revel in God's grace because nobody has sinned so much that they can't be forgiven. And let me just say a quick word on this because part of the challenge um, of talking about this um, is that there's, there's some of us in this room that we look at what Paul said about being the worst and we're like, I don't think so. Um, You did some bad things. I don't think you're the worst. And the reason we don't think Paul's the worst is because we're pretty sure we're the worst. We're like, no, I've got to kind of argue with you on this. I know you did some bad things, but even there, you already kind of said you were acting in ignorance and unbelief. If you knew the things I had done, if you knew the things that I still sometimes do, you'd know that I'm actually the worst. And we're not reveling in God's grace. And the reason we're not reveling in God's grace is because we're pretty sure either we're not in or we're only begrudgingly in or we're only in on a probationary basis. And pretty soon Jesus is going to decide he's had enough of us. 
There's some of you in that position and this passage is so powerful for us in this. It's so powerful for us to come to the point of saying, you know what? You know why God saved Paul? It's partly because he loved Paul, but it's also partly because now 2,000 years later, none of us have to deal with the haunting suspicion that we are going to be abandoned by the grace of God. There is nothing you have done I know you have to believe this by faith, but there's nothing you have done. There's nothing you will do. There's nothing that you're doing right now that will separate you from the love of God. In fact, here's what Paul says in the last two verses of Romans chapter eight. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't be arrogant enough to think that you are a better sinner than God is as a forgiver. You're not. Paul says nothing, that includes what you've done, it includes what you're doing, it includes what you will do. We all know this isn't license, this isn't saying do whatever you want. This is the cure for guilt. But I also just want to throw in here, there's some of you here that you have the opposite issue. Um, You don't think you're the worst sinner. In fact, you're not even totally convinced you are a sinner. You're sort of like, um, I think I do need Jesus to tell me some good things to do because I have some quirks that need to be worked out. Not sins, just quirks. (laughs) Flaws, maybe if you're pushed. Um, You're you're not convinced. And and even if you say I do have sins, you're like, yeah, they're sins, but they're kind of, you know, lowercase s sins. They're not, they're... (laughs) They're not sins that are bad enough that somebody has to die for them. Now, here's the deal. In all seriousness, here's something that Jesus said that's very similar to what Paul is saying here. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you don't consider yourself a sinner, Jesus is of no use to you. Jesus is not somebody that came to bolster the moral aptitude of already good human beings. Jesus came to save desperate sinners. So here's my prayer for you. You know, you know, different sermons highlight different things. This specific passage isn't really a passage that's set up to convince you that you're a sinner. And so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time trying to do that because that's not really where the passage goes. But I do wanna say this. If you're sitting here today and you're not really convinced you need a savior at all, here's my prayer for you. My prayer for you is that God, by his kindness and grace, whether it's today in this sermon, whether it's later on today, whether it's tonight, whether it's sometime this next week, that God will convince you by the power of the Holy Spirit beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a sinner in desperate need of salvation. There's no Christianity without a cross. Jesus came as a savior. And the reason that's my prayer for you is not because that's a pleasant experience. That's not. It's not fun to come to that realization. But you're never gonna revel in grace if you don't think you need grace. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And according to Paul and according to Jesus, we're all in that category. And you know what? The reason that we get to revel in grace is because we are brought into the family, not because we did something great, but because Jesus did something great. As I said at the beginning of this whole thing, we revel in grace because salvation is something that we receive, not something that we achieve. We don't achieve it. Jesus achieved it. Salvation is something that we receive, not something that we achieve. And you know what? 
There's a lot of ways. If, we, if we're going to talk, for those of us who are believers in Jesus, if we're going to say, all right, all right tell me, what does it mean? What does it mean to revel in grace on a practical level? If, if we're going to do this, if we're going to say, this is the house where we revel in grace, what does that mean? One thing that it certainly means is that we overflow in joy-filled worship of the God who saved us. That's what Paul does in verse 17. He says, now to the king eternal, the king of the ages, the one who is immortal, which means he doesn't get tired, he doesn't get sick, he doesn't get old. Immortal, invisible. He's not just one place at once. He's all places at all times. He is always near. Now to the king of the ages, the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We explode with worship. We lose ourselves. We lose track of ourselves. And it's not because we don't have sin, but maybe we spend a little bit less time thinking about our own sin because we're spending a lot more time thinking about God's grace. We're losing ourselves in this because we don't achieve our salvation. We receive our salvation. And you know what? Not only do we explode in worship, but you may have noticed with Paul in this passage, he had no problem talking about his flaws and his failures. He had no problem talking about his sins, which is a far cry from most of us who defend ourselves to the death when somebody suggests that we have a sin or flaw in our lives. What I want to say is you are liberated from that. You can admit your flaws, you can admit your failures, you can admit your sins, you can admit your dysfunctions because your identity in the people of God does not depend on you achieving some status. We revel in grace. And so we get to apologize, we get to confess, we get to work on things, we get to ask forgiveness because we are safe and secure in the family of God. We don't have to pretend we're something that we're not. We confess to people. We confess quickly to God. Instead of trying to hide our own sin and deal with it ourselves, we acknowledge, yeah, you probably knew I was going to do this. I know this isn't good, but I failed again. We come to God. We experience the restoration of fellowship. And we revel in grace by reading his word and by praying and, and experiencing and enjoying the closeness that Jesus came to bring us with God when he reconciled us to God. We revel in grace when we look at people who are far from God And we look at people who are making miserable decisions and instead of despising them, we have compassion for them because we no longer have to feel like we're superior. In fact, we recognize we were on our way to hell and Jesus came and tracked us down. We respond with compassion instead of with despising people. And you know what? We also revel in grace and that we take every opportunity that we can with our families and with our friends and with the people in our life groups and the people in our Bible studies to help other people experience and see the grace of the living God that has come to us. We revel in grace. That's for those of us that are believers, but I just, I feel like it would be wrong to end this message without giving an opportunity also to give an invitation to any of you who are not Christians. There's an invitation to those of us who are to say, revel in this grace, enjoy this grace, celebrate this grace, remember this grace, confess your sins quickly, admit your faults to others, have compassion on people, enjoy closeness with God, do all those things. But there's also an invitation to those of you that aren't Christians, and the invitation to you is place your faith in Jesus. Compton, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
you place your faith in Jesus, which isn't connected to a specific ritual or a specific word or even a specific prayer. It's connected to you coming to the end of yourself and recognizing that you need a savior and recognizing that there is only one savior, but that savior is so good that he has come to track you down when you're far from him. And he came to die in order to take your place. And in a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And I I just want to invite you, if today is the day that God has prepared your heart and you are ready to place your faith in Jesus, I want to invite you to do a couple things. I do want to invite you to to either fill out something on the connection card or come talk to Mike or one of us who will be up front. But even if you don't do that, I want to invite you to pray with me as I pray in a moment to place your faith in Jesus. Let me pray for us now. Father, I want to start by praying for my brothers and sisters here. Father, I pray that we would be a church family who would so revel in the grace that you've poured out in Jesus that it would be contagious. I pray that you empty us of pride. I pray that you empty us in the kind of condemnation that makes us look down on others. I pray that you empty us of the self-righteousness of defending ourselves. Lead us in the joy of celebrating the grace that you've given and of enjoying the new life that we have in Jesus. And Father, I pray for anyone here who's ready right now to take that step of faith, to embrace faith in Jesus. And and if that's you, you can pray something like what I'm about to pray. That's Father, I know, God, I know I'm a sinner who needs to be saved. I know I have real guilt before you. I know that I need a savior And I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus came to be that savior. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he's risen from the dead. I believe that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I embrace, I trust him. I place my full faith in him. Father, I pray for anyone praying that, please forgive their sins, welcome them into the family, adopt them into the family, and show them the assurance of the grace that they have received in Jesus, that they could be one more person who revels in the grace that you have poured out. I pray this in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.